Hello, this is Assigned Scientist at Bachelors, the only science podcast I know about with no cis people allowed. I'm Charles, and I'm an entomologist. And I'm Tessa, and I'm an astrobiologist. And today, as our guest, we have Nicole Petkovich. Nicole is a materials chemist working in industry. She graduated from Duquesne University in 2008 with a BA in physics and a BS in chemistry. While at Duquesne, she did an NSF REU at the University of Minnesota and decided to attend there for graduate school. Her doctoral work focused on templated porous materials for both energy storage and conversion applications. In addition, she also did research on graphene oxide-based tougheners for plastic. During her career, she has co-authored over 10 research articles and reviews and has multiple granted patents and filed patent applications. She lives in the Twin Cities with her wife and her weird little gremlin dog and is trying to learn how to make synthesized music. It is going... Okay, Nicole, <laughs> welcome to the show. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming on. So normally to start out, we ask people how they got interested in science. And then I want to go ahead and preempt that and say that after you answer that question, uh, I would love to get clarifications on several things in your biography. Oh, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> well, in terms of getting into science, I have I think I was kind of like doomed to going into science <laughs> as like a kid. I got like really into certain things. One of them eventually was astronomy. And so I was actually really into the stars and my dad would get Science Magazine. And I remember seeing like the first time they found exosolar planet. And then I also was really interested in gemstones and my dad... Uh, <laughs> And my mom indulged me in that. Not like really expensive ones. That I think really got me into the materials science and materials chemistry area. And then like as I went through school, science always was a passion of mine. And then I took a chemistry class in high school and I really liked it. And for some reason, once I was looking at colleges, I was just like, I want to do material science or chemistry. And there I went from there. So, <laughs> so just starting... <laughs> <laughs> With your biography, let's just go in order. Um, yeah. So Tim <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. So what are templated porous materials? There's a lot of different ways to kind of have porosity in materials. Something that a lot of materials chemists and material scientists will call engineered porosity, and that's deliberately synthesizing materials that contain some amount of porosity. And that's in contrast to, like, say, mined materials or natural materials that also contain some amount of porosity, be it in kind of the structure of a rock or for a biological material, it grows in a certain way to like allow for say transport of water or other things. But templates are basically things that you can kind of create a synthetic shell around them. So one of the things I did when I was a graduate student is we created something that was called a inverse opal structure. What we did there is something kind of akin to the natural opal. You can see inspirations in them and the applications from the natural world. But we would take basically a suspension of very small polymer spheres on the order of a couple hundred nanometers. And over time, you can either let those sediment by the force of gravity, or you can centrifuge them to kind of accelerate that process. But they'll actually pack together in an ordered arrangement. You have all these little tiny ordered spheres of polymers. You can dry them, and then you can put another material, and it'll take by like capillary action, it will draw this material into to the spaces between the spheres and you can burn out the spheres
spheres, and then you get a replica structure. Just to reiterate, to make sure that I understand. So you basically have these materials like spheres, and they make kind of a pattern together. Yeah. And then you surround them with another material, and the spheres themselves dissolve or get burned out. And then you yep. have an empty space within the second material. Yep. Yeah. And it's the, the, the negative replica of what you started out with. Um, and so you can kind of use that to kind of create an ordered array. So if, if having an ordered uh, um, porosity is important, um, using these kind of um, opal-like structures is um, one way of doing that. And that's, um, there's certain applications for the um, kind of the utilizing and kind of harnessing and um, light and it's called photonics and one of the things is that these things can act as kind of diffraction um, can diffract light um, visible light so if you look at certain like I mean like butterflies and stuff like that they have kind of this iridescence and they have these structural colors and this is one way of doing it and by tuning the size of the spheres you can get diffraction of certain wavelengths and- so then the question what specifically are these things used for well right now a lot of them are more experimental for certain hard templated materials some of the other templated materials where you get things that are very very small and other types of porous materials that are at a very small length scale so down to the nanometer scale you can do things like separating out certain molecules you can basically have a lot of surface area for reactions or for hosting other molecules in there. You can also kind of functionalize a surface, so add things to the surface, so you can, you know, potentially envision these as for sensing up um, applications. Because these things have like transport channels, you can also use it for energy applications. There's, yeah, a lot of things that can be done by harnessing basically the fact that you've taken a material and where if you just had a sphere of in the same volume, you can, by punching these holes in there, increase the surface area many, many times to the point where you're getting like over a thousand meters squared per gram of material in just porosity at a very, very fine scale. So Wow. So <laughs> next, graphene oxide-based tougheners for plastics. So there are a, co- there are a couple of things here. Yeah. We're, do we want to start at the graphene or the... Yeah. <laughs> Let's break it down piece by piece and then all together as an idea. Okay. All right. So carbon is a very interesting element. So it's in all sorts of organic things, usually with a lot of heteroatoms. So carbon, like in the inorganic forms, there's different types of allotropes. One of them that's really familiar to most people is graphite, and that's kind of used in like pencil lead as a lubricant and other applications. But what it looks like... At an atomic level is basically these hexagonal rings of carbon atoms arranged in a pattern across space. And there's an interlayer spacing. So basically there's a void space uh, between like semi-infinite planes. And you can kind of imagine it as a stacked layer of these sheets of carbon. Now graphene is where if you can imagine blowing up that sheet and just taking a single layer of that, there's various ways of kind of trying to get just a single layer of of graphene and you can approach it several ways but the methods that we were using were to kind of basically chemically oxidize graphite itself and that starts to functionalize and add the different atoms like heteroatoms mainly oxygen to various sites and 
it kind of makes the entire structure fall apart. And so then you have something known as graphite oxide, which contains a lot of carbon-oxygen bonds. So you can take that graphite oxide, recover it, purify it, and then um, redisperse it in a polar solvent like water. And that dispersion contains monolayer oxidized graphite. And, and from that, you can actually take oxide. that and then do chemical reactions, add functionalities to that surface. And then with that, you can kind of tailor its properties. I do want to pluck out one string of what you mentioned, which is the term allotropes. Mm -hmm. I don't know that a lot of people are probably familiar with that idea, and I was hoping that you could explain it. Yeah, so allotropes are basically different arrangements that an element can have in space. Carbon has a lot of these, so one of the allotropes would be basically graphite. Graphene, the single sheets, would be another allotrope. That's kind of an idea of what an allotrope is, that you can have these different arrangements of a particular element. Carbon is kind of the quintessential one because it's you also have buckyballs, you have types of amorphous carbon, you have diamond. So because all of these have very, very different properties, that is a very active area of research because of how much the bonding configurations change the overall properties of the resultant allotrope. So that's, <laughs> that's graphene. <Yeah. laughs> so it's graphene oxide, right? Yeah. Graphite is a fairly stable material. Even to burn it, it takes pretty high temperatures for flake graphite to start to oxidize. So what you have to do is kind of heat up basically the graphite in a bath of strong mineral acids and add potassium permanganate, which is a strong oxidizing agent. And in that milieu, you get these manganese uh, species that are extremely oxidizing and that will actually attack the graphite itself and then start creating these oxygen functional groups on it and blow apart the entire structure. It's it's not it's not like the friendliest chemistry to get <laughs> To get it, because it is it is a very, in a sense, a fairly robust material. So you have to resort to kind of, you can't use a delicate touch with it. What are tougheners then for plastic? So they're things to basically just improve their mechanical properties. So the thing we were looking at is kind of things that would prevent the plastics from fracturing. So kind of adding materials to hopefully like toughen plastic and make it more resilient. Okay. So material science basically seems like trying to figure out how to manipulate properties of materials so that they can suit a variety of applications best. Yes. Yeah. And it kind of comes back to something that we call kind of a structure property relationship. So you kind of have, uh, that's something that's used a lot in kind of materials chemistry and material science, where you, if you can understand kind of the fundamental structural aspects of a given material you can maybe do things to kind of tailor that structure and also influence its properties, or you can change materials to get different properties that are inherent to the composition of that. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting kind of interconnected um, discipline that draws on knowing about different applications, knowing about synthesis, and knowing about how to characterize and determine certain properties that will be of value um, or of interest for those applications. Taking off from that, I'm actually interested. Normally at this point, we ask people if they can describe their own ongoing research, but I know because you're an industry, 
that is, you know, a complicated Verboded. problem. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but what's interesting there, though, is also that you went into industry and sort of why you decided to do that, what led you to do that. And then also the differences between your experiences in academia and then in industry. So I was actually somewhat interested in teaching. I still do like um, kind of the instructing people um, and kind of like sharing knowledge and doing kind of that teaching aspects. And I mean, that's something that I can also continue like professionally as well um, with professional organizations and whatnot. But I was kind of going down that track and I I there were two things that kind of drew me away from it I would say first is the job market wasn't great for that <laughs> um not gonna but the lie the job market in academia yeah bad? It's, it's not yeah I know the hell you say <laughs> Oh dear. And then it's the first I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> and and the other part I think was like I I had been in graduate school for a while and one of the things to kind of get like look at like tenure track positions and stuff like that. It require another postdoc and I I kind of wanted to do something really different with my career. And I think going into industry was one way of doing that. And I, I also started talking to some people who had gone into industry and just seeing kind of hearing about the variety of different things that they experience um, in industry. Um, it, it kind of changed my mind on a lot of things. And then I just, uh, it was near the end of my PhD. And then I shifted uh, gears to try and get a job in industry. And it's kind of how I ended up here. <laughs> well, how is it like, how, how is it treating you? It's treating me well. I think, yeah, I mean, it's doing industrial science is, it is different because I mean, there's a lot of things that are very much bounded by you're looking to make things that are profitable for a company. So you're looking at the business factors, you're looking at environmental health and safety factors um, that go into that. You're looking at patentability. Um, can you intellect can you protect the intellectual property that you generate? Um, and that kind of changes how you also do some experimentation um, for um, making sure that you can patent something or getting good examples for that. Um, yeah, so it's an interplay of like a lot of different layers um, that you don't really have in an academic experience. So it, it's it's very interesting. It's very collaborative, um, especially with a larger organization, since you have a lot of talent with different areas of expertise. And there's things that you can do to enrich yourself and to continue like um, learning um, as well. But you kind of also, um, it's a very... Yeah, it, it very much um, behooves you to kind of in in kind of the larger um, uh, kind of firms to work with your fellow scientists in a very collaborative way to get things done. Um, yeah, so it's it, it's a very, very different experience from academia. And some people really like it. And some people like will go into industry for a while, um, get their toes wet and then go back into academia. So 
I've seen both with people entering and exiting. So it doesn't like kind of reach equilibrium right out of the starting gate of like graduate school or postdoc, but you know, you'll have people go back and forth. And I know there's some very major uh, material science professors at various universities who were in industry um, for a bit and then went and took um, became professors. You know, it's interesting the way you've described it, because, you know, at least in my experience, there's sort of been the stereotype that, oh, you know, with in academia, you know, there's just so much bureaucracy you have to cut through. And with industry, you don't have that. But it sounds like no industry has its own helping of bureaucracy. Well, yeah, I mean, in a sense, you have to, there's, there's a lot of, you know, rules and regulations that need to be followed in order to, I mean, one of the big aspects of that is it's not necessarily, I mean, it's bureaucracy for a good reason, um, uh, is kind of the health and safety aspects of what you're doing. I mean, that's a very critical role that, um, um, one has to kind of look at when they're um, developing different technologies. Um, but there's, yeah, I mean, there's a lot to it in terms of, um, you know, manufacturability, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, uh, there's going to be always bureaucracy wherever you go. <laughs> you can't get rid of it. But I think it's it's the biggest thing, I think, is kind of the a different end goal and a, a kind of a greater diversity of certain things you have to take into consideration that would not be present in academia. I mean, and for instance, we don't have to write grants, um, but you know, there's, uh, I mean, but actually I shouldn't say that some, um, some researchers within companies will, will actually write grants as well and will partner up with other, um, uh, organizations to do early stage research, um, national labs, or even universities. So you, in a sense, you get, you, if you really want to, you can kind of get everything. <laughs> <laughs> Aside from students, um, like, uh, like undergrads and like grad students, though, I mean, they can I mean, end up working for you as like tech aides or technicians or whatever. Who needs <laughs> undergrads anyway? You know what I mean? Yeah. Bunch of nerds. Um, <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm interested, are in industry and academic material sciences oriented around different questions? Do you know what I mean? Like, is the material science that happens at universities within academia usually more theoretical than, like, applied? Uh, it really depends. It depends on the company. It depends on what stage the research is at. It um, it's, it's, it's really hard to answer that because there is actually a lot of overlap that can occur um, with that. I mean, um, and in a sense, like a lot of the, even the grants that are being an, in academia, I mean, you want to work on something that hopefully at some point um, will generate maybe some sort of result that would be relevant for like um, a greater uh, corpus of knowledge or to a specific application. But yeah, it's 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 highly uh, variable, and like some of that, like I mean, if you're like say looking for a career in industry, you can kind of look at and see what how different um, companies um, kind of balance that out, and what their kind of mo is for how they're going about that. Um, similar to looking at different academic groups um, with regards to um, if they do more of 
a theoretical um, work or very, very strongly applied and maybe even to the point where they have really strong industry partnerships where you can do some very focused research um, towards certain um, certain very like well lined out goals. So, hmm. yeah, industry it's it's <laughs> in a very real way it's extremely exotic to me as somebody whose focus oh. is <laughs> in a discipline which literally has no industrial application. Yeah, <laughs> I kill you on that, Charles. Well, listen, it's we haven't gotten there yet, but someday I I mean fingers crossed, I guess, there will be a weird alien industrial complex. <laughs> got to get in in the ground floor. Yeah, you just got to you just got to hang in there long enough. Alien uh, industrial complex sounds like, you know, like they've invaded. It sounds like like V or something like that. <laughs> listen. You know what? It's I actually to take a brief tangent, I would like us all to think about what the best case scenario of an alien industrial complex might be. Because I have my answer. Um, pretty much whatever the culture is from Ian Banks' The Culture series, where society is run by these um, omnibenevolent and all-powerful AI who also have really good senses of humor and are slightly eccentric um, and just like go around helping other civilizations like advance if they want to. So that would be my ideal. That's nice. Oh, I'm just like picturing dark places right now because <laughs> it's like all the sci-fi. <laughs> Anything with industrial and alien tends to be like, you know, here's this tube. Goodbye. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Um, no, I'll give you. I'll give you another minute to think about it while giving my answer, which is that my first thought is just a, a huge industry catering to all of the like weird perverts that definitely exist in our cultures and probably in alien cultures. Because the first thing I always think about with alien contact is all of the horny people on earth, God bless them, who definitely their first thought is, how do we all have sex with each other? And if you think there isn't going to be a robust market for sex toys, for new forms of prophylactics, you name it. And I think that could be a very, you know, a weird and horny overall positive experience for the world i mean if like the Wait, success, yeah <laughs> if the success of the mass effect series has indicated anything i believe you are definitely onto something right yeah for this it just when you were saying that i'm like oh this is just going to some sort of cronenberg level horror stuff for me. <laughs> Listen, i'm sorry i don't know i think there are not question. <laughs> cronenberg horror type kinks out there reassess oh yeah oh tell, oh yeah i mean <laughs> i'm gonna tell my dad not to listen to this episode you know what it's material science dad you won't you won't understand it. yeah. um oh dear but yeah so we're talking about industry yeah um unless you have anything more to say on the contrast between industry and academia i am actually interested in given like an ideal circumstance what kind of 
driving questions in material science you would most like to work on? Oh, that's actually very interesting. Um, I think I've I've done a lot of research in uh, renewable energy, um, both in terms of generation um, and storage. So I think actually looking at the questions about how to efficiently store energy at different durations for different types of grids, um, kind of the aspects of how that integrates kind of also on like a sociocultural level and kind of the economics behind that, that, that would be kind of the areas that I would be very interested in. Um, I remember when I was a kid, like reading Scientific American and like seeing like fuel cells are going to be like 10 years in the future. And they weren't 10 years in the future. I mean, they're, they're coming. There's a lot more now and a lot of push now um, with that. And especially like fuel cell vehicles from like, um, like the Toyota Mirai and stuff like that. But like that kind of, uh, yeah, like localized energy generation, localized energy storage, that's, that's kind of stuff that really, really, really interests me. Can you define what makes a fuel cell, basically? Uh, yeah, so it's an electrochemical device used for the controlled oxidation of a fuel um, to produce a potential difference in an electronic circuit and uh, thus powering it. Uh, there's a lot of different types of uh, fuel cells, but uh, for a typical hydrogen fuel cell, um, that one utilizes the redox reaction of hydrogen and oxygen uh, via those gases flowing into a stack of cells and um, the appropriate half reactions taking place in the anode and cathode There's a lot of, of different of types cells. of fuel cells. You have the uh, reactions occurring on two sides of kind of this cell and things diffusing across um, a membrane. Um, to maintain charge balance and stuff like that. So, I mean, it's it's basically an electric a means of kind of electrochemical generation of power. And this may be a silly question, but what distinguishes a fuel cell from a battery? That's it's it's a good question. I mean, um, for basically. Uh, so there's a lot of overlap in that, um, <laughs> and especially looking at it um, for the f for fuel cells, um, you can kind of look at. I mean, some of them have are pure like it's g gases are being fed into it from um, kind of both sides. Um, you for batteries, you typically have um, basically their solid solid state. Um, and they might have a liquid electrolyte inside them. Um, there are also batteries known as flow batteries, where you actually have a flowing um, electrolyte that um, basically um, is the uh, is kind of the energy storage medium um, that will be pumped into both sides of a cell. I mean, you can actually have like flow batteries that also have little particles in them where those particles will react. <laughs> so, um, well then my final question before our final, final question, is there anything about material science that you just want people to know? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a very, um, interesting field because it, it really is kind of a, kind of a central point and you can see, with material science, where chemistry, biology, and physics will all be involved, along with um, aspects of modeling, it's it's a very 
vibrant kind of place where it's kind of interconnected with a lot of different disciplines. And um, it's it that's one of the things that always is kind of, if you're someone who really likes learning about things or likes um, kind of looking at different types of systems or different types of materials or envisioning different how things go into certain applications or how these properties can kind of be tailored and stuff like that. It's, I think, a very rewarding field in that sense because it, it again, occupies kind of this very centralized location that, like, can draw on so many different um, uh, other disciplines. So... Maybe maybe I'm just doing a pitch for materials chemistry and materials <laughs> science. Listen, I'm not going to stop you. <laughs> yeah, I'm just chilling here. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think you know it's 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 always to br- to bring it back to me. It is always interesting because like I wanted to be an entomologist. You know, when I was seven years old, because I go, you know I was able to go outside and be like, <laughs> look, bugs, I like those. You know, like entomology in that way. And this is the background of a lot of entomologists that as kids, they really liked insects. And then they just followed that all the way to a career. Whereas, you know, I don't think that there are probably a lot of seven-year-olds who are like, I want to go into material science. No, it's not. (laughs) I think that's like less of a, like the kid would have to be a pretty intense nerd to be like, oh man. (laughs) I want to design the next material. (laughs) No, no. But yeah. This leads us into the final section of the pod where we ask our guests to weigh in on one of several recurring questions. I I think I'll go with the fourth one because I was like thinking about these questions and like I, I... I was like, you know, if the apocalypse happened, I would be eaten by like possums or raccoons within like five hours. Like, I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't even make it a day. So, yeah, I, no, I'm there with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm like day after the apocalypse. No, I'm one of the ones that just gets like incinerated or whatever. Like in the, like the flashy Hollywood scene. For I mean, that. it's nice <laughs> to know these things about yourself. Right? Yeah. I would be incinerated. That's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I'll actually talk about like the the medical advances. One of the things I would like to see is kind of more research on kind of like, we know that a lot of stuff with HRT are pretty safe, like in the medium term. And there's still some questions in the long term in terms of kind of, you know, what might be some of the side effects and stuff like that going forward. And it looks like it's pretty good but i've read some articles on like pubmed where they're like well we still don't know like how optimizing say a certain hrt regime might decrease any of the risks and like get it to levels that are very i mean extremely excellent and so like that's kind of what i'd like to see and also like maybe some how maybe like hrt could be better used for like non-binary people and uh, yeah i think that would be interesting near-term stuff that i hope some epidemiologists and like uh, clinicians take on (laughs) soon well it is weird to think about in the grand scheme of earth because there are cultural traditions scattered hither and yon where there are basically exogenous hormones used but in terms of contemporary synthesized hormones 
they've you know they've literally only existed for about a century yeah and i it's yeah and it's and it's only been until recently that you've been getting really really large cohorts doing kind mm. of the the standard like feminizing and masculinizing hrt and yeah it's it's i think it's an interesting thing where it's like I, yeah like the scientists and the articles will freely admit like i you know, there's probably there there could be something better out there, and we're just gonna have to like get the data sets, um, look into it, and figure it out. And so that's that's kind of what I hope. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I not getting any great. younger. <laughs> <laughs> Linear time. Yeah. Uh, no, I love getting older. Even because I used to be, I in my early twenties, I would hear about people's bodies like starting to hurt and fail them in their late 20s and I was like oh no and now I'm I'm here knocking at the door of 28 and I have started experiencing some of these bottling aches and pains but I you know in a weird way I kind of like it I feel like I was I was always born to be old and I've just been <laughs> waiting to be an old man my whole life so even if I don't like literally like that my back aches in some way I like enjoy oh I'm 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 getting older it's validating yeah. I, it's I, nice. Yeah, I enjoy more the perspective of age and just like looking back and being like, "Man, I, I had no idea what was going on there." <laughs> yeah, I think about sometimes how seriously a lot of people took me when I was seventeen years old. I'm just like, "Oh God, why? Don't take me seriously when I'm sixteen. Come on." See, when I was when I was sixteen, we just had like Zanga blogs and all of that and <laughs> Live Journal, baby. I am yeah, I am glad, like, I was a Zanga girl, and all of that got deleted. It's in a, like, a bunch of early millennials have, like, the most <laughs> embarrassing, long-form information about their personal lives as high school students, and it's gone. And thank God for that. <laughs> yeah, I really feel for all of the Gen Z kids. Yeah. Because it's like, it's, because I, I really think the the generational divide is that like because i'm a young youngish millennial i'm like because i was born 93 which is in the last few years of millennial and for me you know facebook and live journal and tumblr and whatever were part of my life in high school but they yeah. weren't like we didn't have instagram that came a little bit later. There wasn't this constant sort of sense of surveillance through social media. It was like an extra thing that people would go on but didn't. This is really the definitive thing, I think, is that I was growing up in a time pre-smartphone and thus oh, yeah. before those things were with you literally constantly feel for him yeah feel I, for yeah i lived in i i was born in eight, 85 so i lived in like the the non-internet days partially yeah, and that is yeah wow <laughs> although Zanga. speaking of journals you know you mentioned it's a good thing they're all deleted so i discovered that i could actually recover a few of my entries using uh the internet archive because of like oh, no. a handful of them had been stored and oh my god <laughs> it was like who is this person even did you also like have like the oh my god i am so profound i'm going to put these thoughts down because i am the most profound person i'm in college i'm profound <laughs> There were definitely that, a, and that was cringe. Like, it wasn't a lot, but there were definitely a few a few entries that were like that where I'm like at one point I was like talking about how I felt so much older and wiser than the girl I was dating <laughs> as a sophomore oh, and the girl was a freshman and gross. It's Come just on. like 
<laughs> you got to be kidding me. No, I put the writing that I thought was really profound on deviant art. Oh my. Because <laughs> I didn't do visual art. I was like, I want to participate. Oh dear. I did have a Zanga, but that's because I got into blogging very, very early. Because yeah. Zanga was on its way out when I was and then I had Live Journal of course and I had Blogspot and Tumblr. I've had all of the I've had all of the blogging. Oh God. Like I have some of those Zanga posts saved. Uh, one of them was just so like melodramatic and like just i was like i'm gonna delete you forever so i don't have to deal with knowing that i wrote this at one point (laughs) nicole you've been a fantastic guest thank you it's been a real treat if people want to find out more about you or your past research that isn't shrouded in mystery yeah Where should they look? Well, I have a I have a Google Scholar page. So if you just look up my name, Nicole Petkovich, you can find that. I also created a professionalish Twitter account yesterday, and I'm blanking on the name. That will be As, <laughs> this. This episode probably won't get published until March or April. Oh, perfect. Uh, I can actually look that up real quick because it's in okay. the email you sent me. Um, the empty little one. Yeah. one being like the number one number one because i was like trying to put like the empty little spaces and then it's just like i'm gonna truncate this in like this way and i'm like really twitter come on i love that this twitter account name is like simultaneously a reference to your professional research in porosity yes but also sounds a little bit like an emo 13 year old oh like, yeah you know self-definition yeah, yeah. I it's wasn't gonna say it, romance. It's, well, and, and just you know this is not meant offensively at all but what better encapsulation of like the experience of a lot of you know adult trans people yeah you know what i mean <laughs> nicole petkovich's the empty little spaces by fallout boy yeah <laughs> exactly i I need to have like more like mascara and like really like just high level like smoky eye like in my like like... some neon thigh highs (laughs) and fingerless gloves that are also fishnet for some reason really live out the fantasy yeah um Okay, if if anybody wants to find me, I am on Twitter at Cockroach Arles. And I am on Twitter at SpacerMace, S-P-A-C-E-R-M-A-S-E. The show is on Twitter at A-S-A-B Pod and at our website, asabpodcast.com, where we post show notes and transcripts for every episode. And until next time, keep on sciencing.